humans as a whole are wired to fear and to dislike the unknown. It is in our nature to want to research and seek out things and try to put them into terms that we can understand. We don't like leaving things undiscovered. We don't typically like unsolvable mysteries. We want to be able to wrap our heads around things and to make them simple. We want to feel safe and secure. We want to understand everything that is around us. One unknown that we wrestle with in particular that we want to understand is our future. We want to know exactly what will happen to us in the future. We want to know how our present decisions and circumstances will affect our future. And we as humans come up with ways to explain and rationalize what will happen to us in the future. Unbelievers around the world have a uh, wide range of opinions about who or what controls what will happen to us in the future and in our lives and after we die. Hindus believe in karma and in reincarnation, that good or bad actions in our current lives and even in past lives we may have lived determine our circumstances and fate in the future and also determine what our afterlife or the next life looks like. Hindus do believe that gods have some control over karma, but it is largely controlled by personal action and work, not by gods. Buddhists also believe in karma, but place an even greater role on personal action, on personal work, and even less of a role on um, any outer power controlling what happened to us. Many atheists believe that there is no purpose or direction in life at all that our future is determined by chance and our action, and the only thing that is fated is death. Nominal Christians, those who claim to believe in the Christian God, may believe that if they are doing good works, then God will bless them, and if not, then he will punish them. One of the most comforting biblical truths in the Christian life is that our God is providential. The Belgic Confession, Article 13, says this about God's providence. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. John Piper said that providence, in reference to God, means the act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Putting all those ideas and definitions together, God being providential means that he is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He sustains the world, and it also means that he shows divine care and provides for his people. Nothing can happen in this world apart from God's will. In other words, he's got the whole world in his hands. And as far as life after death goes, we believe that those who know Jesus, who have put their trust in him as Lord and Savior and received his amazing grace, have secured eternal life in the presence of God after death. We can take comfort in these truths, knowing that our future is not solely determined by our own actions or by chaos. Instead, knowing that our future is in the hands of a providential God who really loves his people. In John Piper's book, Providence, he says, the reality of providence is not found in any single biblical word. It emerges from the way that God reveals himself through many texts and many stories in the Bible. In order to understand God's providence, we must see how he provides and cares for his people through different parts of biblical history and through the Bible as a whole. In order to do this, 
today, we are going to walk through the story of Joseph. Genesis 37 through 50, looking at Joseph's dreams, his trials, and his prosperity. We are going to see how God brings his promises to pass, how he sets everything in motion to provide for Joseph and for the people of Israel. We're going to see God take Joseph's harsh conditions and trials and prosperity and weave it all into a beautiful story that proclaims God's providence. Before we talk about Joseph, we need to understand the context of when his story takes place. We need to understand where we are in the history of Genesis. Joseph is the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, God promised Abram that he would give him a land that he would show to Abram, that a great nation would come from Abram, and that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. In Genesis 15, God once again promises that Abram would have children, that they would be as numerous as stars in the sky. He promises that Abram's offspring would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs for 400 years, that they would be servants there, but that they would leave that land with great possessions. Later, in Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, those promises were told to him once again, this time with a promise that he would have a child by that time next year. Around a year later, Isaac was born, and when he grew older, and when Abraham had passed away, God told Isaac in Genesis 26 that he would keep the promise that he gave to Abram, that it would continue through Isaac. This promise was once again extended to Isaac's son, Jacob, in Genesis 35. Jacob had 12 sons in total, one of whom was Joseph. And this brings us to Genesis 37, where Jacob and his family are sojourning in the land of Canaan, waiting on the promises of God to come to pass. They are waiting for the day when they will sojourn in a foreign land for 400 years, and for the day when they will come to possess the land that God promised to them waiting for the day when God will make them into a mighty nation. So now let's turn and let's look at the story of Joseph, starting with Joseph's dreams. The story of Joseph picks up in Genesis 37, where Joseph is described as a boy, 17 years old, who works as a shepherd alongside some of his brothers. One day, Joseph brings a bad report of them to his father. He tells on them, showing his integrity that, You know, he's a good son, even at a young age. Very quickly, we can start to see that Joseph is Jacob's favorite child. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, as he, Joseph, was the son of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved the most. Jacob also loved Joseph because he was born when Jacob was very old, the child of his old age. Jacob gave him a robe of many colors, a gift worthy of a prince, that told everyone that Joseph was his favorite son. Has anyone with siblings ever asked their parents, who is your favorite, and been told, I don't have a favorite, I love you all equally? It was plain to see because of the robe, because of how Jacob treated Joseph, that he was the favorite child, no questions asked. Kids, think about this. Imagine if your parent, when you asked them, who is your favorite, said, it's your brother, or it's your sister. I love them more than you. It wouldn't feel very good, right? That is the situation that Joseph's brothers find themselves in. They are jealous of Joseph. They want to be the favorite son. And no matter how hard they try, they will never be Jacob's favorite children. Verse 4 says that they hate him because he was the favorite and they could not say nice things to him. Soon, 
Joseph has two dreams, dreams that make his brothers hate him even more. He tells them about these dreams, two dreams that Jacob is able to correctly interpret. He understands that these dreams mean that Joseph's brothers and even Jacob himself, his father, will one day bow down to Joseph. These dreams show that Joseph will one day be like a king over his family. Joseph's brothers, of course, are furious, and we're told that they hate him even more because of these dreams. Even Jacob, his father, gets angry at Joseph, like we might when someone tells us something we don't want to hear, but we know that what they're saying is probably true. Jacob isn't mad at Joseph because the dreams are wrong. He just doesn't want to hear that he will one day bow down to his son. Jacob sees these dreams for what they truly are, dreams that have been given to Joseph by God. Even at this early age, we can see that God is starting to work in Joseph's life, that he is giving promises to Joseph just like he gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob himself. And this is a sign that God is going to do great things through Joseph. Jacob keeps these dreams in mind, as Joseph surely does as well. Well, let us move to consider to hear about Joseph's trials. In the end of chapter 37 through 41, Joseph goes through many trials, which God uses to prepare Joseph for the future. One day, Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers, and as they see him coming from afar, they say, here comes this dreamer, and they plot to kill him. They have gone from not being able to speak nicely to Joseph to wanting to kill him. I grew up with a brother that was slightly younger than me, and we fought and argued, and there were certainly days when I could not speak very nicely to him, as I'm sure many of us can relate to. Brothers argue, but not like this, right? Joseph's brothers hate him so much that they want to kill him. But Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, wants Jacob to love him again, so he stops the brothers from killing Joseph. Instead, they take him and they throw him in a pit. They take his robe away from him, the symbol that he was uh, Jacob's favorite child, and they, they throw him into this pit. And at that point, the brothers decide to sit around the pit and have lunch. Picture the scene. Joseph in the pit, no water, no food, probably crying out to his brothers to let him go, to get him out of the pit. But the brothers hate him so much that they just sit there and eat. They ignore Joseph's crying. They hate him so much that they can ignore his suffering and just let him sit in the pit. But it gets even worse. Around that time, the brothers look up and see a caravan of merchants passing by with camels loaded down with goods that they are going to go sell in Egypt. Judah, one of Joseph's older brothers, says, Guys, we shouldn't kill Joseph. We don't gain anything by killing him. He's our brother. We shouldn't kill him. Duh, Judah, right? You definitely shouldn't do that. But the brothers don't let Joseph go. Judah says, let's sell him as a slave to the merchants, the traders, and let's make some money off of him. Judah convinces the brothers not to kill him, not so that they could save him, but so they can sell him as a slave and so they can make some money. Joseph is sold into slavery to the captain of the Egyptian guard, to Potiphar, while the brothers trick their father into assuming he is dead. They cover his goat, I mean his, his coat, with the blood of a goat. Joseph has gone from being the favorite son, the one treated like the prince, to being a slave. 
If you were Joseph, how would you feel? Sad, hopeless, betrayed, filled with despair, right? He has been taken away from everything he knows from his family, and he is being sold into slavery by his brothers. We can only imagine how terrible Joseph must be feeling right now. But as we move into chapter 39 and see what happens during Joseph's time in slavery to Potiphar, verse 2 tells us this, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Joseph was successful in his slavery because God was with him, and he made it so. Joseph, even though he was a slave, was having a lot of things go right. He was prospering because God was with him. God took Joseph's bad situation, and he was making the best out of it. And Potiphar, Joseph's master, sees this. Somehow he, despite not being a worshiper of God, saw that God was with Joseph. So Potiphar places Joseph over his house, over everything that he owns, so that Joseph could make his house thrive and be prosperous. He sees that basically everything Joseph is touching turns to gold. So he says, here's everything I have. Make me rich. In verse 6, Joseph is described as a handsome man, which leads to a problem for him. Potiphar's wife thinks that he is very good-looking. So Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph repeatedly asking day after day for Joseph to lie with her. But Joseph continuously refuses day after day, saying that his master has put everything under his care and given him everything except for his wife, of course. Joseph does not want to sin against his master, but he is more concerned about sinning against God. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He shows integrity, realizing that he would truly be sinning against God if he lay with Potiphar's wife. But one day, as everyone else is out of the house and as Joseph is working, Potiphar's wife grabs hold of Joseph's outer garment, like his coat, and tells him to lie with her. Joseph once again refuses, and he actually runs away, leaving the garment behind, giving us a great example of what to do when we face temptation. Run away! Flee! However, Potiphar's wife fabricates a story about Joseph, claiming that he came to laugh at her, to attempt to lie with her, and when she cried out, he ran away, leaving his garment behind. Potiphar, of course, believes his wife, believes her lie, and he throws Joseph in prison. Joseph has done nothing wrong, yet he has gone from taking care of everything in Potiphar's house as a slave to now being thrown in prison for no reason. It's like being told to do something by your boss and doing everything exactly right and then being fired for it anyway. Once again, we need to think about how Joseph is feeling. He has been sold as a slave by his brothers, but things were going relatively well for him. He was successful even as a slave. But now, he did the right thing. He, ex he acted exactly how he needed to act. He did not give in to temptation and sin, but he was still punished. But verse 21 of chapter 39, once again, tells us that God was with Joseph, that God was showing him steadfast love and favor, which leads the prison keeper to place Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners in the prison. Joseph could have taken this time to focus on his misfortune. He could have concluded from his circumstances that God was against him. He could have lost his hope and joy. But he did not give himself over to despair because he knew that God was with him. The prison keeper was able to see that God was with Joseph as well. 
Maybe because he was joyful due to his faith in God. So Joseph continues to be successful, even in prison. Sometime after Joseph was in prison, Pharaoh throws his cupbearer, the one responsible for making sure he's not poisoned, and his baker into prison for some kind of bad thing that they had done. One day, both men have dreams, dreams that the narrator of Genesis tells us have two different interpretations. When Joseph comes to see them the next morning, he sees that they are troubled. And when they mention the dreams, he says, Do not all interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the cupbearer describes a dream where a vine produces three branches with grapes on them. And the cupbearer takes those grapes in the dream and he squeezes them and he gives the juice to Pharaoh. Joseph explains the dream, saying that these three branches represent three days and that Pharaoh will give the cupbearer his job back in those three days. Joseph, of course, wants to get out of prison, saying that he was stolen from the land of the Hebrews and that he had done nothing wrong. So Joseph asks the cupbearer, when he is released, to remember him, to to tell Pharaoh how Joseph was able to interpret his dream so that Pharaoh would set Joseph free. Joseph also interprets the baker's dream, but this interpretation is not good. The cupbearer got the good news, but the baker gets the bad news. Joseph tells the baker that his dream, where he dreams about birds eating bread out of a basket on top of his head, means that Pharaoh is going to hang him, that he is going to execute him in three days. In three days, both of these interpretations come to pass. The cupbearer is restored, but the baker is killed. However, the cupbearer does not do what Joseph asks. He does not remember Joseph, and he does not mention him to Pharaoh. So Joseph remains in prison for two years. Once again, things are not going well for Joseph, and it really seems like he can't catch a break. However, we don't see him complain, start to ask why. We don't see him start to doubt God. We don't see him start to descend into sorrow and into depression. The text doesn't tell us anything like that. God is still with Joseph showing him that steadfast love, encouraging him even despite the two years that he is in prison. At the end of the two years, Pharaoh also has dreams. He dreams of seven plump cows that are happily eating grass in the field, but are followed and eaten by seven ugly, thin, gross cows. He also dreams of seven good ears of grain, like seven perfect ears of corn fresh out of the field, that are swallowed up by seven blighted, thin ears of grain. So Pharaoh calls for all of his uh, magicians and all the wise men across Egypt, and he, he gets all the smart people together, and he asks them to interpret his dreams. None of them are able to do it. None of them are able to interpret his dreams. But it is at this time when the cupbearer remembers Joseph, and he tells Pharaoh the story of Joseph, how he Um, was able to interpret his and the baker's dreams. So Joseph is sent for, and after he gets cleaned up, after he gets a shave and a shower, Pharaoh describes the two dreams to Joseph, asking him to interpret them. Joseph explains that these two dreams have the same interpretation. He tells Pharaoh that there will come seven years of plenty, where the Egyptians will be able to grow and store as much food as, as they need, more food than they have ever seen before, followed by seven years of famine. 
He tells Pharaoh that because God doubled his dreams, this means that God will shortly bring about these years of plenty and of famine. Joseph gives all the credit to God for this interpretation. He says God will give Pharaoh an answer. God has revealed to Pharaoh what is about to happen. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do, and God will shortly bring it about. This time, Joseph does not ask, remember me, set me free, Pharaoh. It seems like Joseph is a lot less focused on his freedom in this situation and a lot more focused on God receiving the credit and the honor and the glory that he is due for his interpretation. God used the two years Joseph was in prison to humble him. He used that time to prepare Joseph for what was coming, to grow Joseph's humility so he would not fail when it was time for him to act. Joseph did not turn away from God in that time, and instead he grew in faith and love for God. Instead of asking for freedom, for something for himself, Joseph instead tells Pharaoh that he should place a wise and discerning man over all of Egypt, a person who will take one-fifth of all the grain grown during the seven years and store it up for the coming years of famine, so that the people of Egypt won't starve. Pharaoh and his servants are pleased by this proposal, and Pharaoh says, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? He says that since God has shown this to Joseph, that since the Spirit of God is in Joseph, no one else can be as wise and discerning as he is. Pharaoh, too, recognizes that God is with Joseph. So he makes Joseph that person, the wise and discerning man who will be placed over all of Egypt, placing Joseph in command of his house and making him second in command, like the vice president of Egypt. This now leads us to the years of Joseph's prosperity. All of what Joseph predicted, what God revealed to him, ultimately came to pass. Seven years of prosperity come, and Joseph takes one-fifth of what is produced in Egypt, and he stores it up in every city in great abundance, so much so that they cannot possibly measure all that has been stored up. There seems to be as much grain in Egypt as there is sand in the ocean. While Egypt is prospering, Joseph is also prospering. He's becoming rich and powerful. Pharaoh gave Joseph many gifts, his signet ring, a gold chain, a new robe, showing that he is favored by Pharaoh, that Pharaoh is giving him almost as much authority as Pharaoh has himself. He is making Joseph like a king. He also gives Joseph a wife, a daughter of an Egyptian priestess. Before the famine came, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh first and Ephraim second. Now, even though Joseph is prospering, even by worldly standards, even though he has left his slavery and imprisonment behind, this situation is still like a trial. He is being pushed into Egyptian culture. He is being given great power and status, and he may be faced with the temptation to forget God and to think that he brought himself here under his own power. We are prone to this, right? When we are in times of trouble, that is when we want to lean on God. But when things are good, we are tempted to forget God. This is the situation that Joseph is facing. However, the way that he names his sons makes it obvious that he has not forgotten God. Manasseh means to forget. And Joseph says he names him that not because he has forgotten God, but because God has brought comfort to him because he has made him forget his hardship and his father's house. Ephraim means to be fruitful, and Joseph says he names his son that because God has made him fruitful in the land of his affliction, of his sadness. 
He gives credit to God for everything he has been given. He recognizes that it was God who brought him through his affliction, so he stays humble. He continuously gives thanks to God. He recognizes God's providence, how God has been working in his life, and he does not turn away from God in the time of plenty. Joseph continues to be faithful in the bad and now in the good. As the seven years of plenty draw to a close and the famine starts to spread all over the land, Joseph opens up the storehouses of Egypt and begins to sell grain to the Egyptians as well as those from all over the earth as the famine spreads all over the earth. The famine eventually reaches Joseph's family in Canaan. When Jacob, Joseph's father, hears that Egypt is selling grain, he tells his sons, minus Benjamin, the youngest, to go buy grain for them and their families. And as they come to buy grain, as Joseph's brothers come, Joseph sees him, sees them all, and he recognizes them. Joseph was not thinking about his brothers. He said he had forgotten his family, so it wasn't like he was seeking them out. We don't know exactly how Joseph encountered his brothers. The narrator does not tell us, but we know that this encounter has been brought about by God as part of his plan. When Joseph sees his brothers, he is understandably on guard against them. He doesn't reveal who he is immediately. They don't recognize him, and he treats them like strangers. When the brothers stand before Joseph, however, they bow down to him. They bow their faces to the ground. It is at this moment that Joseph remembers the dreams that he had before he was sold into slavery, the dreams that were interpreted to mean that his family would all one day bow down to him. And here his brothers are, bowing down to him. God's promise, the dream that he sent to Joseph, has come true. So Joseph speaks to his brothers roughly. He claims that they are spies, that they have come to see the weakness of Egypt. But they say, no, they are not spies. They are all brothers of the same man, 12 sons, um, that their father and their youngest brother are uh, back in Canaan, and one brother is no more. However, Joseph says that he is going to test them all to see if their words are true. And Joseph does put his brothers through a series of tests. It is like he tests them to see if they have changed, to see if they are different men than the one who sold him into slavery, to see if they are repentant of what they have done. He tells them that to verify their words, they must leave one brother behind and the rest must bring their younger brother, must bring Benjamin back if they want to buy more food and if they want to get their brother back. At this point, Joseph is speaking to the brothers through an interpreter, so they don't realize that Joseph understands them. The brothers say to one another that they are guilty concerning their brother. They realize their sin and think that they are paying for what they have done to Joseph through what is happening to them now. Reuben, in their language, says that he told them all not to sin against Joseph. He says, I told you so. And now they are paying for their sin. At this point, Joseph gets emotional. He weeps. He cries as he hears the brothers express their sorrow over the sin. He turns away from them, and after he is able to recover, uh, he still tests them. He makes sure that they are truly repentant, so he continues with his test. He takes Simeon from them, he ties him up, and he sends the rest of the brothers off with the food, but he puts the money for the food back in their bags. In doing this, Joseph creates a very similar situation from before. 
The brothers can choose to abandon their brother and never look back. They can take the food that they have. They can profit on the loss of their brother, on the loss of Simeon. Or they can come back, this time with Benjamin, thinking that they are saving Simeon from prison and possibly death. They can either choose to abandon their brother and profit, or they can come back and save him from death. When they return to Joseph and see that their no, sorry, when they return to Jacob and they see that their money is still in their sacks, Jacob is very distressed. He thinks that a mistake was made and that the man they don't know as Joseph is going to kill Simeon because of the misunderstanding with the money, and he refuses to let them take Benjamin. He refuses, that is, until all the grain they had brought was gone. And Judah reminds Jacob that they cannot go down to Egypt and buy more grain without Benjamin. Judah offers to bear the blame on himself if Benjamin is not returned, and he convinces Jacob to send Benjamin with them. So they return to Egypt once again. They do not abandon their brother, and they pass one of Joseph's tests. So Joseph returns Simeon to them, and then Joseph invites all the brothers to feast with him. He refuses to accept the money that they try to return to him, saying that it was given to them by God. During the feast, Joseph sets another test for them. He gives Benjamin, his youngest brother, five times the portion of food that he gives the rest of the brothers. He shows favoritism to Benjamin, just like Jacob showed to him, to see if any of the brothers are jealous. However, they do not get jealous. It says that they drank and were merry with him. They have a party, and they're not worried about how much food is Benjamin is getting. And they pass another one of Joseph's tests. However, Joseph wants to be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that his brothers have changed. So he sets up one more test for them. As they go to leave, he places a silver cup in Benjamin's sack full of food, allowing the brothers to leave with the food and the money they brought once again. But then he sends his steward to chase them down and search them to find out who stole the silver cup. When the steward catches up to them, the brothers are shocked that they are being accused of this. They trust one another. They are confident that no one has stolen from Joseph. So they say that if any of them stole it, then that one can be killed and the rest will all be Joseph's servants. They stand together. They don't point fingers. They don't say, he did it, he did it, he did it. They trust one another with their lives. After checking everyone else's sacks, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. When they return to Joseph, they fall before him once again, all bowing down to him. Judah says that God has found their guilt and says that they will all be Joseph's servants. He conveniently leaves out the part about whoever stole from Joseph being killed. He wants to save Benjamin. However, Joseph says that he will only take Benjamin to be his servant. But Judah refuses to leave Benjamin, saying that if he leaves him, then his father will die of sorrow, and the blame will be on him. Judah tells Joseph everything that has happened, and he says that he cannot do this evil to his father. But once again, the brothers pass this test with flying colors. It's like they have aced their job interview, especially all the ethical questions designed to trip them up. By refusing to abandon Benjamin, Joseph is convinced that they have changed, and he could control himself no longer. He weeps in front of the brothers he reveals himself to them, and he explains that everything that has happened was all part of God's plan. He explains that it was God who brought him to Egypt so that God's people could be preserved, so that they and their little ones would live. 
Joseph recognizes that everything that had happened was God's will. It was part of his plan to bring about his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He recognizes that the hand of God has been on him throughout all of this, that it was God's providence that brought him to where he was today. In the final chapters of Genesis, Jacob and Joseph are reunited. The people of Israel are settled in the finest land of Egypt in Goshen so that their livestock will survive. And Jacob eventually dies and is buried with Abraham and with Isaac in Canaan. After Jacob dies, the brothers are fearful that Joseph is going to take his revenge on them. They worry that he was only being kind to them because Jacob was still alive. So they devise a plan to trick Joseph into thinking that Jacob left a message telling him not to take revenge on his brothers. When Joseph hears this message, he weeps. He is sad that his brothers think of him like this. These are Joseph's words to the brothers in Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21. He says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph, once again, points out the providence of God in these verses. He says that God had taken the evil that the brothers did to Joseph and had turned it into good. Joseph's brothers ignored his suffering and sold him into slavery, but God redeemed that evil action, meaning he took the evil that was done to Joseph and used it to bring about his will, to make it so that many people could be kept alive. God did not cause the evil to, concert, to occur, but he is sovereign and providential over it, and he is able to take evil and redeem it so that his will may come about. In this case, God took those evil actions, the sin that was done against Joseph, and he used it to bring about his promises. He promised Abraham that nations would come from him. He promised that Abraham's descendants would sojourn in a land that was not theirs for 400 years, eventually leaving with great possessions. And God used what happened to Joseph to make those things happen bringing his people to Egypt where they would grow and prosper and one day leave to take the land that God had promised them. In this, we see how God brought about his promises through redeeming the evil action of Joseph's brothers. But in this story, God also used Joseph's less than ideal circumstances to prepare him for the future. God used Joseph's slavery and imprisonment to prepare him for when he would need to be wise and discerning and faithful in order to save God's people. God caused everything Joseph did to be successful despite his, circumstancing, despite his circumstances, blessing him no matter what he faced. Also, God's will would be brought about. While we may not see too much direct action from God in these chapters, meaning that the narrator does not specifically tell us that it was God putting these things in motion, Joseph makes it clear that, it, that God was always working, that it was him who placed Joseph exactly where he needed to be in order to do what God needed him to do. Joseph's story shows us the providence of God. This is the main idea we see. From Joseph's story, we can see that God is providential over all things, that he redeems evil to bring about ultimate good and is always working to equip his people for the future. From Joseph's story, we can see that God is providential over all things, that he redeems evil to bring about ultimate good, 
and is always working to equip his people for the future. Joseph's story shows us that God is providential, that he is sovereign, that he sustains the world, and that he shows divine care for his people. There are many applications that we could draw from this truth, but for now, I want us to reflect on God's providence in two ways. I want us to see one reason that we can trust in God's providence and one application from what we've heard today. So first, the reason. We can trust in God's providence because of Christ. We can trust in God's providence because of Christ. The most amazing thing to me about the story of Joseph is that he is able to forgive his brothers. Joseph was able to break the pattern of familial and really brotherly violence that exists throughout the book of Genesis from Cain and Abel to Jacob and Esau. In doing this, in forgiving his enemies, and in many other things that Joseph does, Joseph foreshadows, he points to another beloved son who was to come, Jesus Christ. Joseph was the beloved son who was sent ahead of his family so that God could use him to prepare a way to save his people. Jesus, God's beloved son, was sent from his place at the Father's side to bear the weight of our sins so that we might be saved. As Joseph was able to forgive his brothers who had wronged him and was able to reconcile his family to one another, Jesus died so that we, his enemies, could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God. Joseph trusted in God and sought to do his will, trusting that God would use his trials for his good and for God's glory. Jesus also trusted in God. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Trusting that God's will was perfect and would bring about good. And these are just a few ways that Joseph foreshadows Christ. One other way that Joseph foreshadows Christ is probably the most significant. In Genesis 50, Joseph says that the evil that was meant against him was meant for good by God. His brothers sinned against him, but without that evil, Joseph never would have been able to save his family. God used that great evil to bring about his promises, to save his people, to bring Joseph's family together, and to take care of them and their little ones. This points to a future greater evil that God redeemed for good, the crucifixion of Christ. Like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed when he had done nothing wrong. He was arrested, he was tortured, and ultimately, he was crucified. He was murdered. He went through one of the most cruel and humiliating forms of execution in existence. So much evil had been done to Jesus, the Son of God who descended to earth, the fulfillment of the promises God made to Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the offspring through whom blessing was supposed to come. The reality, church, is that even that great evil, the greatest evil in the history of the world, the darkest day that has ever been known, was able to be redeemed by God. That horrible thing that was done to Christ, that his enemies meant for evil, well, God meant it for good. God was in complete control. He was providential over even that great evil that was done to Jesus by mankind. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. Why? So that he could bear the sin of many. So that he could make intercession for the transgressors. Even those who crucified him. So that he could reconcile his enemies to the Father. What they meant for evil, God meant for good and good 
is exactly what was done. Great evil had to be done to Jesus so that he could take our place, so that he could bear the punishment that we deserved for our salvation and for the glory of God. But the good news is that it did not stop with his death, his perfect sacrifice. Jesus was resurrected. Jesus was murdered, but God shows his absolute providence by raising him from the dead. Through Christ, through the redemption of the great evil that was done to him, we can trust in the providence of God. We see God's absolute providence through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because God took that great evil and brought greater good out of it, we can be sure that there is no evil that God cannot overcome. The providence that we see in Jesus' life, of course, extends over us. There is no circumstance that we can find ourselves in. There is no sin that is done against us that God is not in control of. More than that, if we know Christ, if we have been saved through the work of Christ, if we have confessed that he is Lord and believed in our hearts that he has risen from the dead, then when God looks at us, he does not see his enemies, the ones who crucified Christ. When he looks at us, he sees his beloved son. When he looks at us, he does not see our faithlessness. He sees the perfect faith of his son. Through Christ, through the redemption of the great evil that we see at the cross, we can be assured that God is providential. But through Christ's work, we can also be assured that we have been made God's children to which God will always show his divine care. That was the reason that we can trust in God's providence, but now here is one application. We can trust in God's providence in our trials. We can trust in God's providence in our trials. Through Joseph's story, we see that God was always with him, even when he was a slave, even when he was a prisoner, when things seemingly could not have gotten any worse. In those times in chapter 39, there are two times we see this mentioned. First, in verses 2 and 3, when Joseph is a slave, the narrator says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Later, as a prisoner, verse 21 tells us, But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God made Joseph successful or prosperous in these circumstances, though we certainly wouldn't say a slave and a prisoner were prosperous by worldly standards. Yet, the Bible says that he was prosperous. The reality of God's providence is not that he will make us prosperous by worldly standards, but that he will prosper us, he will be with us within our circumstances. In Joseph's story, we are told that God showed him steadfast love and that Potiphar and the prison keeper were able to see that God was with him. Because of the steadfast love of God, because God was with Joseph, Joseph gained favor with these men. How were they able to see that God was with him? I think it was because of the spiritual blessings that God gave Joseph during his trials. God showed him steadfast love, and that must have translated to joy and faith and patience and peace and self-control. Joseph's joy and faith, his trust that God was with him and had not abandoned him, must have been evident in his interactions with others. Joseph's patience and peace meant that he did not despair in his circumstances. Joseph's self-control meant that he did not ask why or complain about his situation. In his interactions with Joseph, sorry, with Pharaoh, Joseph showed wisdom and discernment, things that also come from God. 
These are all the things that were given to Joseph by the Lord that come from the Spirit of God, as Pharaoh pointed out that Joseph has in him. God gave Joseph great spiritual blessings throughout his trials that helped him endure in those trials that helped him face them with joy. And that led to God's will being done and his glory being shown throughout Egypt. So God was with Joseph during his trials. He gave Joseph spiritual blessings, but he also used Joseph's trials to prepare him for the future. Earlier, I mentioned that God used the two years when Joseph was in prison to humble him. When Joseph interpreted the cupbearer's dream, he was more focused on himself at that time. He was trying to find himself a way out of prison, so he asked the cupbearer to remember him, to mention him to Pharaoh. But two years later, after he had spent so much time in prison, after he has grown in humility, Joseph does not ask, God, uh, ask Pharaoh sorry, for his freedom when he interprets his dreams, and he gives all the credit and honor and glory to God. God used Joseph's time in prison to humble him so that he would be equipped to do what he needed to do in the future. And God used all of Joseph's circumstances to do that. Because of God's providence, because we are his people through the redemptive work of Christ, we can trust that God is using our circumstances, good or bad, to prepare us for the future. James 1, 2-4 tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James tells us to be joyful when we are facing trials of various kinds. Because the testing of our faith will lead us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the reality of God's providence. He is working in all things to make us perfect and complete lacking in nothing, ready for anything that may come our way. God is working in our lives exactly how he worked through Joseph's. He is using our trials to prepare us for the future. When we are facing trials, when we are suffering, when we are feeling overwhelmed, when we feel like we cannot possibly handle what we are going through, we can know that God is using it to prepare us for the future. We can know that he is with us, that he gives us spiritual blessings, that he gives us all we need to persevere. We can trust that good things are going to come out of our circumstances because God is working all things for the good of those who love him, all for his purposes, as Romans 8 tells us. When we are facing these trials, it is difficult to trust and see the good that is coming out of them. But the reality of God's providence means that when we meet trials of various kinds, we can thank God for those trials because he is using them to make us more like his son. He is with us in those trials, and through his spirit, he gives us everything we need to persevere, and we must lean on him. This is what Joseph's story teaches us. God truly is providential. If we truly trust in God's providence, then we know that he is with us in our trials, that he will give us spiritual blessings, that we can trust in his promises, and that he will use all things for our good and for his glory. Whatever we face, we can trust in God's providence. Let's pray.